And here in this psalm, Psalm 50, the psalmist Asaph takes up the whole discussion, the whole subject of the nature of acceptable worship. He discusses the kind of worship that is God-honoring, the kind of worship that is God-glorifying, and it seems that many today have no real serious understanding of the need, let alone regard for the proper worship of God. It's amazing to see the kinds of things that go, go, go on in the name of worship in many places. There are many who have all kinds of mistaken, misguided ideas as to what worshiping God is all about. For example, there's a misguided notion that worship is designed to uplift one, to give one happy, elated feelings. So that many times a worship service is assessed not in terms of whether God was pleased with the worship, but in terms of how it made the worshiper feel. And this psalm brings into focus certain crucial truths related to this matter of acceptable worship to God. First of all, we learn from this psalm that the true proper worship of God is predicated on the truth of who God is. The true proper worship of God is predicated, is based on the truth of who he is. In the first place, implicit in this psalm is that in worshiping the Lord, one must understand that he is the all-powerful God. We must, if we are to worship God aright, if we are to worship God in an acceptable manner, in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God, must recognize him as the all-powerful God. We have been studying in Sunday school the various names of God, and what we have here in verse 1, the designation of God as the mighty one, God the Lord. El, of course, speaks of his might, of his power. It's a name that is used in association with El Elyon, God Most High. Elohim portrays God in his majesty. And Yahweh, of course, his being the covenant-keeping God. He is set forth here as the mighty, all-powerful God, the mighty one, God the Lord. Secondly, if we are to worship God aright, we must recognize him as the sole sovereign Lord of the world. We must recognize him as the sole sovereign Lord of the world because we are told in the B part of verse 1 that he speaks, notice, this God, mighty God that he is, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. All throughout the scriptures, and especially in the Psalms, God is set forth as the one and only God, the one God, the true God, who has sovereign command over all the earth. In Psalm 2, we see, for example, that notwithstanding the rage of the nations, God has decreed that worldwide dominion, he has decreed worldwide dominion for his Son, to whom the peoples of the earth are admonished to submit. Psalm 8 speaks of the majesty of the Lord's name in all the earth. Psalm 46, verse 10, God commands the nations, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 
In fact, Psalm 66, verses 3 and 4 tells us that his enemies will come cringing to him and all the earth will worship him. Psalm 72, verse 19, the earth will be filled with his glory. These and other scriptures underscore the truth of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5 through 6, where he states, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So here's the point. Any true, acceptable worship of God must recognize and acknowledge him as the one and only true God there is. There cannot be any attempt at worshipping him, this God, the mighty God, while worshipping or affirming the legitimacy of some other so-called deity. There are those today who would attempt to do that in the name of religious tolerance, in the name of not appearing to be religious bigots. They say, well, we recognize and we affirm the validity of other religions, but that will not work if we are to worship the living God. That will not work. Why? Because God himself prohibits the worship of other gods besides him. In fact, in Exodus 20, verses 3 and 5, God says, declaredly says, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children under the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And notice here, God suggests that if we are not serving him, if he is not recognized as the sole sovereign Lord of the earth, then we are in fact hating him. In Isaiah 42 verse 8, he contends, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved idols. Now, because God is the only God there is, because he is the only true God there is, it follows that he has the right to exercise sovereignty over all the earth. As such, notice in the B part of verse 1, notice what scripture says there. He summons the earth to give attention to him. Verses 4 and 6, he calls on the heavens and the earth as his witnesses in judgment and be vindicated as the righteous judge. And what we have in these verses, as we hear God calling to the heavens, calling his people, summons his people, the whole literary style of what we have in those verses patterns what is known as a, you know, a lawsuit. God, as it were, is summoning the world. He's summoning in particular Israel, and he's taking Israel to court. Why? Because he's not getting the kind of worship he is to be getting, he's, he, that, he, that, he, that he deserves. In the third place, implicit in this psalm is that in worshiping the Lord, we must understand that he's gloriously majestic in his person. We must understand that he is the God of transcendent glory and majesty. And so look at verse 2. Here's what the word of God says. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. In this verse, we have three of the most sublime words that could ever be used in one sentence. And they are the words perfection, beauty, and God. 
Zion, the dwelling place of God, is called the perfection of beauty, but the truth is, its being the perfection of beauty derives from the fact of God's shining, glorious presence there. And what is the point here? The point is, you and I will never come to the place of truly worshiping God, giving God the honor, the glory he he deserves in worship until we understand, until we recognize something of his beauty, something of his glory, something of his majesty. If we do not see God as being who he is, the glorious, majestic God, if we see him in commonplace terms, then we will never truly worship him. God is great in glory and majesty. God is glorious. God is infinitely great. And that's why we worship him. And then fourth, implicit in this psalm, is that in worshiping the Lord, one must understand that he is the judge of the entire earth. He is the judge of the entire earth. And why is that important? First Peter chapter 1, verse 17 tells us, if we call on the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, we should conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our sojourning. The truth is, We can never truly worship God without reverential fear of him. There are people who can take steps with God, who can be reverent and flippant before God because they do not recognize that God is a moral judge who calls people to account for how they live, for how they conduct themselves. That is why the writer of the Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, that we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and Oh, that God is judge of the earth is stated in verses 3 to 7 of our text, and we'll come to those verses in a while. But fifthly, if we are to truly worship God, we must understand him as the God of covenant grace. He's the God of covenant grace. And what do we mean by that? Notice he has a people for himself. He calls to himself his people, that is to say is redeemed here in our passage, they are described as his faithful ones. He's a God of covenant grace. He's not just the God that everybody worships. He's the God who is worshipped by his people, by his redeemed. And so if a person is not saved, if a person has never been born again, never converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, that person is not in a position to truly worship God in the proper sense of the word. So the first thing we learn from this psalm is that the true worship of God is predicated, is based on who God is. He's the mighty God. He is the glorious God. He's the God of covenant grace and so on and so forth. But here's a second major lesson we learn from this psalm we have read this evening, and that is that God, here it comes, God cannot be bought by our worship, however elaborate, however costly, or worship might be. We see that in verses 7 through 13. God cannot be bought with our worship. So here's what God says to his people, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your foals, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, 
I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? All this is a way of saying that because God is the proprietor of the universe, because God is the possessor of all things, because God owns all things, he is the all-sufficient God. And here's a truth that we must understand. If we are to truly worship God, if we are to render worship that is acceptable to God, we need to understand at a fundamental level that God needs nothing from us. God needs absolutely nothing from us. In fact, he will be no man's debtor. That is why we read in Job chapter 41, verse 11. Here's what Job, here's what the question that is raised in Job 41, verse 11. Who has first given to, to me, this is God speaking, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Paul made this truth very clear to the men of Athens as he preached to them on Mars Hill. He told them in Acts 17, 24, 25, he says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. At the end of the day, what does this mean? When you and I worship, you see, you and I are not doing God a favor. We know that. We're not doing God a favor when we worship him. We're not fulfilling some need that God has. The fact is, our worship is a privilege. Our worship of God is a privilege. We could put it like this. We get to worship God. We get the privilege. We get the honor of worshiping God. Because at the end of the day, God, in a real sense, in a real sense, does not really need us. God is okay in and of himself. His acceptance of our worship is purely a matter of grace. God, as it were, condescends to accept and be delighted by our worship. And we see such understanding of worship illustrated in David's own worship. First Chronicles 29 verses 10 through 14. David makes it clear that in worshiping God, he was not doing God a favor. Here's what he says. First Chronicles 29, 10 through 14. He says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Verse 12, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great, to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Verse 14, but who am I? And what is my people? That we should be able to offer thus willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. You see that? God is saying to Israel, and he's saying through David's own worship, listen, I don't need anything from you. When you come to appear before me, when you come to worship, 
Here's the point. You get to, you get to worship me. You get the privilege of worshiping. We don't do God a favor when we worship him. And so God was saying to Israel here through the psalmist Asaph, he was saying in effect, he does not seek sacrifices for their own sake. And by extension, he's saying to you and me today that in all our worship, in all our service, in all the sacrifice we expend for him, he seeks more than anything else praise that is our sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 14, God says that's really the sacrifice I'm interested. I'm not interested in the externals of worship. I'm not, ex- I'm not interested in mere rituals. I'm interested in a hearty gratitude and praise. I'm, in- I'm interested in your offering me hearty, grateful worship. And what he also desires, he suggests to us here in this psalm, are prayers of trust and dependence on him. He desires that we might experience his glorious delivering power and that as such glory might redound to him. You'll see that in verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. He says, look, I don't really need anything from you. I want for you to call upon me in the day of trouble and I will be glorified. He also desires our obedience. Our conforming our life according to his will. Notice what he says in verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. And the one who orders his way aright, I will show the salvation of God. So those who are engaging, those who are engaging in offering sacrifices to God while neglecting his will, disobeying his word, He tells us in verses 16 through 20, he'll not accept such. Notice the kind of people who, as they were worshipping, notice what their lifestyle was, that which caused God to say, I will not accept your worship. Such are characterized as the wicked. Verse 16, whom God says, have no right to recite his statutes or take his covenant on his lips. He says, you're wicked. You're not really for me. You're just going through the motions. Yes, you are dutiful in your compliance, external obedience, but at heart, you are wicked. Verse 17, he describes them as those who hate discipline, who discard his word. What is God saying here? If we are leading disobedient lives, if we are being disobedient to the known will of God, then we are not ready to worship him. Verse 18, he says, they are complicit with thieves and company with adulterers. If we are affirming, if we are politically correct, if we, for the sake of saving face in the name of tolerance and political correctness, do not take a stand for righteousness, God is saying we don't deserve to come to him in worship. And notice verses 19 and 20, he says, these people don't deserve to worship me. Their mouths run rampant with evil, with deceptive, destructive speech. You'll see that in verses 19 through 20, which leads us to ask ourselves, when we come before God in worship, what is the quality of our lives? Are we knowingly disobeying God? Are we contravening his word in any way, deliberately living in known sin? Then God says, what right do you have to take up my name in your mouth? What a challenge to you and me. We realize here that God is very much concerned not just with rituals, 
but with righteousness. And by the Lord's assessment, they venture, these people, he says, venture to worship him in such irreverent manner, slipshod manner. And why do they do that? They do that out of a misguided notion that God is of the same mindset and outlook on worship as they do. Look at verse 21. The Lord says, after he catalogs their sins, which disqualified them from worship, he says, you thought that I was one like yourself. And with these words, you thought God pinpoints precisely where the people of Israel went wrong in their worship of him. Where did they go wrong in their worship of him? They went wrong in their worship of the Lord because of their skewed, faulty thoughts concerning God. You see, worship that stems from our mind, worship that stems from our hearts, Unaided by the Spirit of God, worship that stems from our feelings as to what God should be like or what he's like is idolatrous. Any notion we have of God that is not coming from the word of God is idolatrous. We are not worshiping, we are not serving the true and living God. Idolatry, you see, has its roots where? In the mind, in the heart. It has its roots in our belief system, in our judgments, in our imagination. John Calvin was right, wasn't he, when he said this, that the human heart is a factory of idols. And through the psalmist Asaph, God was chiding Israel, he was chiding Israel for attempting to shape and fashion him in their own image. According to their own carnal, idolatrous imagination as to what he's like and what pleases him in worship. You see here they were going through the motions, going through the externals of religion. They thought that somehow God, just as they thought, righteous did, did not matter. They thought God was of the same mindset. He would accept the worship. He would accept their elaborate worship even though their worship was devoid of righteousness. God says, look, you, th- you thought I was one like you. He says, I'm not. Don't make me, pattern me according to your idolatrous mindset. The problem with Israel at this point was that they had very low, cheap views of God. And we can mark this down. Whenever we do not have high, exalted views of God, whenever we do not see him... As he is disclosed in scripture, as he is revealed in scripture, for example, if we do not see him as the mighty, majestic God, if we do not see him as the all-glorious, all-powerful, sovereign God, then we are going to worship him in ways that are mean and low and cheap. The people of Israel imagined that God was in for their show of religiosity, that he was impressed by their ritualistic fanfare, but little did he realize that the Lord sees, not as man sees, that whereas man looks at the outward appearance, the Lord looks at the heart. Little did they understand that God has his own prescribed standards outlining how he is to be worshipped. Incorrect thinking about God's character as one writer puts it, breeds idolatry. And I would add to that, it leads to faulty, skewed worship. Time and again in scripture, we hear the Lord's denunciation of the kind of religion, the kind of worship that is purely a matter of externalism, a matter of rituals without 
a heart relationship with God. In Isaiah 29, 13, God through the prophet Isaiah laments, here's what God says, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and for their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Similarly, in Jeremiah 12, verse 2, it is said of the wicked that God is near in their mouths but far from their hearts. Does that describe you? Does that describe us? Over in the New Testament, we find the teaching that when it comes to the matter of worship, God sets a premium on the state of the heart, the spiritual condition over the heart, over and above the externals of worship. Remember the woman at the well? She was deliberating, pontificating, whether it was on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem that God should be worshipped. And what did Jesus tell her? He told her in John 14, 21, 23, 24, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Then we have our Lord Jesus as we draw to a close this afternoon. He, he stressed the need for inner purity and obedience to the word of God over and above attention to ritual washings. Some people came to him one day accusing him. They said, your disciples do not wash their hands before they eat. Jesus said to them, why do you transgress the commands of God for your, you know, for your traditions? And Jesus made it very clear that it's not a matter of ritual washings, but the state of the heart. The state of the heart. What a person is before God, the motive behind what he or she purportedly does in the name of God is of more importance than what he or she does externally. And so what can we say about this psalm as we come to a close? We can say this, that when it comes to our worship, when it comes to our worshiping him, God expects nothing less. And that we should worship him as he has revealed himself in scripture. And we have seen, as we, in the, as we, as we have outlined earlier in this psalm, he's the all-powerful, sovereign, glorious, majestic God. He's the judge of all the earth who demands worship, but worship that is attended by righteousness of life. And what a sobering warning he issues to those who would be careless when it comes to worshiping him. Because notice verse 22, notice the warning he gives for all those who would venture to worship him carelessly, to tread his courts lightly, so to speak. He says, verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God takes is worship seriously. That is why the writer of the Hebrews says, we need grace whereby we might be able to serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Hebrews 12, 28, 29, he says this, for our God is a consuming fire. He's not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God to be toyed with. He's a God to be held in reverence, 
in true worship by his people. May God bless these words to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen. Number 582, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.